0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host James Creech and today's guest is George Ozunian, a satirist, internet personality, author and man of so many more talents. George, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start things off and really dive into your career. Let's find out how you started in comedy, how you became an internet personality, started, you know, creating content for the world. Sure, I am the typical internet stereotype. So you you hear about, uh,
1: you know, the kid who Grew up in his mom's basement uh, writing angry rants on the internet, the trolls. That was me. I grew up doing that kind of stuff in my mom's basement. And I found the online world, specifically my website, as an outlet – uh, for anything I wanted to write about, talk about, and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, my professional job, my day job, was a programmer for a telemarketing company. I worked at that job for nine and a half years, hated it. And eventually, when my website got more
0: popular and more traction, I was able to quit that job and focus on this full time. Wow. So when you were originally creating content, was that just for you as a creative escape, or was it designed for people to tune in? It was public, so... People found it, but mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how specifically they found it. I, You know, I would share it with a few circles of friends here and there. Uh, sometimes I would write some articles to kind of uh, poke fun at my friends' beliefs like vegetarianism and that sort of thing. But for the most part, it was my little anonymous outlet. And I found – I would look at the logs for my website – Religiously, I would constantly analyze and scrutinize the logs because, to me, it was fascinating that this little guy in Utah, sixteen-year-old kid in in you know in his parents' basement, anyone cared about what he had to say, and to my surprise, and uh, huge, I guess. uh, I was flattered when this happened, but people were reading it. And at first, it started out with like, a, you know, just a trickle, four or five readers per month. And over time, it slowly grew to about 200, 200 per day. And that blew my mind. And then the real breakthrough came in 2002. I wrote an article called I Am Better Than Your Kids. And it was all, all about me just uh, making fun of children's artwork and calling, you know, grading them Fs. And that went super viral. Um, I went from. 200 hits per day to 2000 and then millions of hits overnight. And the traffic never really stopped. And then, you know, I got a book deal and, and the career grew from there.
0: Wow. So that was the beginning of the success. And all of this was pre-YouTube, pre-online video for the most part. Yeah. So you were doing this just on your own website, kind of blogging about your, your experience <laughs> and your perspectives. Right. I was part of the original email forwards that people would send to people.
1: Uh, even to this day, I'll get someone who recognizes one of my old pieces from 2002, and they say, yeah, I used to, st- I saved this in my emails. I printed these out. I have all these kids who come up to me, and they said in high school, they printed out my articles and brought them to class with them and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, that just blew my mind that that was happening on that level. Because I, I again, I was just a kid in Utah who was writing these, these funny little articles, and they were getting spread around, and millions
0: of people were reading them. And how did the transition to video impact your creativity and the type of content you were producing? Well, so that was a very careful step I wanted
1: to take because I knew a couple things would would change. First of all, Maddox, my my pseudonym, my my persona, is just that. It's a persona. I draw myself as a very muscle-bound, big, bald pirate, right? And I'm very self-aggrandizing and macho and... Uh, a womanizer and all these things, but George, you know the person that you are going to be seeing and hearing, the person you're listening to now, isn't as cool <laughs> because I have this voice and I don't look quite like the pirate that I draw. You know, I'm not as uh... so. I knew it would be an adjustment, and there would it would shatter the illusion that a lot of people had in their minds of my writing and my persona. But it was a step that was necessary to take. And that's because I saw the trend of media shifting. You have to adapt to the media. You have to adapt to the times. Now, I didn't want to just produce content for YouTube that was just like my website because there's no point. People can just go to my website and read my content. So I I found a way to create native content that is native to the media that I'm using. So, for example, the analog to grading children's artwork in video form is to grade their singing. And that's something that I can fully utilize the audio format to do so. So it wasn't until I had that breakthrough moment where I thought, okay, this is a way I can, I can translate my written article into video form organically that I finally took that plunge to do that. And the backlash to it was pretty intense at first. I think the most hate I got... For years was when I first released my first video, and people were like, "This sucks. Go back to writing. This is terrible. You're you don't you have a face for uh, for radio, and <laughs> you know all these all these ter- terrible things. People saying I got I, I look like I had AIDS, cancer, all these terrible oh, things. Geez, right? well that's the internet for you. Yeah, well I I expected that. That's what I predicted, and that's what I expected because it's a new format, and my fans are awful. But I remembered an important lesson, which is I used to suck. Um, when I was 16 years old my writing was not that good it just wasn't that that polished it wasn't that refined in fact most of it I would love to delete and in fact uh, a lot of it from 1997 you can't read because it just sucks I've, I've put in, you know hidden it from the archives but I also knew another thing that because I used to suck in the past I continued and I became a better writer and I thought well if I stop at this phase of my video-making career, I'm never going to improve. And fast forward to a couple of years later, and my videos have improved, and people do like them, and they have their own fan base, to the point where, when I started podcasting, people uh, came to me with the same same type of criticisms. They were like, dude, this sucks. Your podcast sucks. You don't know what you're doing. Go back to videos. And I thought, wow, here we are, full circle now they're telling me to go back to doing videos when they first told me to go back to writing. So it's important not to
0: listen to your fans to, to a high degree. You know, take it with a grain of salt. And you entered into these new formats, first video, now podcasting, because you saw that was where the audience was going or that offered you more opportunities to be creative? What was kind of the driving force? Um, it, it's kind of the opposite. I It's something I wanted to do. And then...
1: I find the audience, or the audience finds me. I don't chase an audience. I do something that I want to do. Uh, Podcasting is something that has always appealed to me because I'm a huge fan of talk radio. I used to listen to Tom Lykus and Howard Stern and Phil Hendry and The Don and Mike Show and uh, Adam Carolla and all these classic talk radio personalities who inspired me and shaped who I am and my point of view uh, in a lot of ways. And, and that format was just so exciting to me. So it's, uh, it's been hugely uh, en- enriching to be able to do that. And then again, fast forward to a couple, just even a couple months ago, I appeared on the Adam Carolla show, which was, uh, you know, one of my big idols and influences growing up. That's awesome. So what are the hardest parts about being an independent content creator? Well, the hardest part is not knowing where your next paycheck is going to come from. It is a constant struggle to, uh, you know, a lot of times it's feast or famine. Sometimes I'll get a book deal and that'll be very lucrative for a little while. Uh, Other times I have to wait and bide my time and, uh, you know, I write, I've sold... Three shows in Hollywood, three TV shows, and I have nothing to show for it except I. I finally have another show coming out that's actually uh, in production, and and uh, you know these these type of things. Yeah, wow, very exciting. Yeah, it finally does does happen. It can happen, but it's a long, uh, it's a lot of waiting and a lot of guesswork as to where your next paycheck will come from, whether or not it will be successful. For example, writing a book is absolutely it fills you with anxiety because it's something you work on for two years of your life and you don't know if it's any good until it comes out. And then, you know, your entire career could potentially write on that. So it's not
0: for the faint of heart. You've now authored three books. Yes. Tell us about the experience, you know, first book, Alphabet of Manliness. What inspired that writing? What, what inspired you to go down that path in the first place?
1: Um, so the Alphabet of Manliness, uh, when I wrote that book, my editor from New York reached out to me and he just said, hey, you want to write a book? And I said, sure and um, i didn't really have an idea at the time i had some it was inspired by an article i wrote a long time ago called a tribute to real men and i wanted to write a book an entire book about manliness and men right uh but that wasn't the title i wanted i didn't want to call it a tribute to real men so where that book finally you know took took shape that that concept is I was in a comic book store uh, with a friend of mine, and I was looking at a book. There's a graphic novel by uh, an LGBT author. Uh, her name is uh, Bechtel, Alison Bechtel, And she wrote a book called Dykes to Look Out For. And I thought, I thought, and, and it's based on a graphic novel, I thought it was going to be like an A to Z of like different types of lesbians. And I thought, oh, that's weird and funny. And I thought, why isn't there something like this for men? And it turned out that's not her book and that's not what she was going for. But I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to do an A disease of manly stuff. And that's where the alphabet of manliness came from. And ironically, uh, you know that's that's kind of what inspired me and uh, you know, come full circle. I didn't realize until, Just a few weeks ago when I was doing some research that it was Alison Bechdel who is the, uh, you know, famously known for the Bechdel test in media, which is whether or not two female characters in a work of fiction talk to each other about something other than a man, then the work of fiction passes the so-called Bechdel test. Uh, And that's a that's a gauge for how women are supposedly represented in media. Hmm. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Have you ever had a chance to meet her? No, I have not. I I don't I don't think she'd be a fan of mine. Hmm. Fair enough. Okay. But although my book is satire, I don't think it's her type of humor, but I think she would probably appreciate that it is satire.
0: Yeah. How have your experiences in traditional publishing and and in traditional media with Hollywood differed from the work that you've done independently? Differed from the experience from your independent content creation, right? The stuff that you do on your website, the stuff that you do through your podcast, Best best debate in the universe, or your YouTube channel?
1: Yeah. Well, the di- the difference, first and foremost, is that I can produce my content and release it on a schedule that that I want. So I can produce a video today, release it today and get feedback today. Whereas doing it through a publisher is a very glacial process. Uh, although you get you do get a much more refined product at the end of the day. My draft of my new manuscript for my my newest book, Fuck Wales, went through so many different revisions and so many different uh, note sessions. And my editor uh, is very tenacious with facts and arguments and logical consistencies and seeing if uh, there's there's contradictions or repetition in prose and that sort of thing he's really good at that so uh you have to listen to him and i mean you don't have to you can be an asshole but i <laughs> i listen to my editor he's smart he gets it yeah uh so that's different and every book i publish is a different beast um my first book was a new york Times bestseller my second book came out and it was basically a coffee table book that came out in an era where bookstores were closing so it's very difficult to sell bo- a coffee table book the still the book still did uh very well because you know Publishers don't like to give book deals to authors who don't sell books. Uh, and then my third book came out again. It's a it's been a different set of challenges. Every book has a different set of challenges. And I wouldn't say I wouldn't begrudge one for the other. I would say that publishing content independently has its value and merit, and publishing through Hollywood or publishing companies also has its value and merit. Have you worked with the same editor for all three of your books? Yes, I have.
0: And uh, that's been a good experience?
1: Yeah, I love the guy. Jeremy Ruby Strauss. There we uh, go. He's he's a very reasonable man. And I can't emphasize that enough. He's very reasonable. And what I mean by that is it's a rare trait to find in somebody the ability to persuade them, and also they have the ability to persuade you. So he is persuasive, and he can be persuaded. He's not so stubborn or boneheaded. He will listen to your argument, and if it makes sense to him, he will accept it. There are very few disagreements we've had where we just couldn't see. You know, we couldn't find an. You know, we were at an impasse. But yeah, he's a great guy. He's very in tune, and he's very um, f- uh, forthright and frank with his uh, with his commentary and criticism.
0: Yeah. yeah. Have there been times in your creative career where? You are interested in a different direction or you want to create different types of content than you have in the past. You talked about the format changes in which you recognize you had to do some things for a while that your fans were going to like or there, some were going to give you tough feedback about. Have there been stylistic changes or creative choices that you made that have differed from what you've done in the past that perhaps turned off some of your audience?
1: Yeah, definitely. Every time I start a new medium, you know, video uh, Turn off uh, fans from the past. Uh, uh, podcasting turns off fans from the past. Anything I do new. In fact, just as recently as a month ago, I released not even a month ago, a, few, a couple of weeks ago, I released a video that was a new format for my channel. So normally, I'm a talking head. You know, a person on in front of my the camera, and I stand in front of a green screen, and I uh, key out the background, and I talk about facts and statistics and things that I want to do commentary on social commentary. I tried an experiment with just my logo. I animated my logo, my face. So it was talking with the dialogue that I was talking to, and it was a flo- literally a floating head floating around from scene to scene talking about what I was looking at. And that was a new format I was experimenting with, and the uh, response was intense, and people, a lot of people hated it. But I really like it. I think that it's there's something to this type of format that, because it is very iconic and it's weird. it's a little unsettling and it's weird, but it's very iconic. I think, I think if this type, if this style gets foothold, it will be very big on YouTube and you'll see other people
0: biting my style. What is your take on some of the challenges that YouTube experienced last year? Obviously, Adpocalypse, right? There's demonetization issues for what YouTube has deemed to be not brand safe content. Then you had Elsagate, uh, all these issues around children's content and, and brand safety again. What do you think YouTube is taking as a stance in its relationship with creators? And what do you see as the future of the platform? I think that YouTube is in a very tough position. The creators
1: love to dump on YouTube. Like It's almost like this antagonistic relationship between the company and the creators. And I I keep trying to remind people, like, guys, the company is not out to get you. They realize their creators are their most valuable asset. But at the same time, they have to also play nice and appease the advertisers. Because without the advertisers, they can't monetize this platform that everyone feels entitled to. YouTube doesn't owe you free hosting. That's what people keep forgetting. They want to upload their content and then they bitch and moan if it gets demonetized. And guys, YouTube doesn't have anything to gain by demonetizing your videos. They are a business. They want to make money. So if you find your videos demonetized, that's not YouTube putting their thumb on the scale and saying, aha, we found content we don't like. YouTube would love to monetize everything on their platform. They would love nothing more than that. So for you to then turn around and say, oh, YouTube is out to get me, it's conspiratorial, it's immature, it's stupid,
0: and it's contradictory to what YouTube is as a business. Many of the YouTube stars that have emerged on the platform are very young, right? And this is the first success. This is the first fame and fortune that they've seen. And sometimes they do things that, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, are stupid or crass sure yeah absolutely and then you find that in some ways i think they feel invincible that their fans will follow support them yeah uh, regardless of what they do what, what's your take on some of that and there's been a lot of that in the news in the past few weeks it comes from immaturity and a lack of experience and perspective and i i get it it's basically
1: it's almost like the gambler's fallacy because the worst thing that can happen to a gambler is for them to win because as soon as they win, they that sets the pattern in their mind. They think they're always going to win. I actually once dated a girl. We went to a casino. And she started out on quarters. And she hit a jackpot. And then she moved up to dollars. And she hit a jackpot. And then she moved up to fives. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is you're $5 per spin. This is ridiculous. You're going to lose everything. Quit you're, while you're ahead. Quit while you're ahead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was impossible to get through. And so finally, uh, you know, of course, a few spins later, (laughs) lost everything. And I thought – I said, okay, well, I'm glad you learned this valuable lesson. I know it sucks that you lost all this money. But uh, I would rather you lose money today than think that you're going to continue winning and lose money tomorrow. So that's what kids are like today on YouTube. They're making a lot of money. They have found their success. But they think that the success is – impervious they think that they are impervious uh, due to the success rather they think that it's always going to be around yeah that, that it'll last forever yeah, yeah that it'll last forever that they are uh immune to anything. you know at the talk that we i think we met at we we met at an internet panel that's right at digital uh, hollywood digital hollywood new media panel yeah. and someone asked the question what companies in the future uh should we keep our eyes on and somebody on the panel said uh team 10 now team 10 is logan paul and jake paul's big company and they are the number one youtubers uh in the world even even right now in spite of the scandal oh my goodness and i thought that that was an answer that i disagreed with because when you are completely driven through the the uh the strength of one or two personalities for your company and you don't produce anything other than this cult of personality you're one scandal away from losing everything And that's what we are seeing right now today. Uh, This is, uh, you know, Logan Paul had the big scandal where he went to Japan to the uh, suicide forest and did some really insensitive boneheaded things by recording a body that he found and then uh, made light of it and made jokes and things like that. And it was a huge scandal and blew up in his face, as it should. So that's what that's the hard lesson. That a lot of young YouTubers are going to eventually learn. So they need to work hard,
0: diversify, and not put all their eggs in one basket. Do you feel that this is similar or somehow perhaps more extreme than child actors, right? In traditional Hollywood, you had Justin Bieber, right, acting out, or Lindsay Lohan and and all the issues that they experienced years ago. Is this the same thing playing out on the internet or is it somehow different? Yes, to an extent, except it's far
1: worse. Because through traditional Hollywood, at least there were safeguards for those children. Like, for example, if a child is going to show up on set, uh, there's very strict laws on how many hours they can work. There's laws in place to protect their earnings from their parents and that sort of thing. But with the YouTube generation, you, in a very real sense, are free to do whatever you want. Sometimes kids can build entire empires in their bedrooms and their parents don't even know about it. So they are getting this fame and success without the supervision and safeguards that came with traditional Hollywood. So I think what you're going to see, and it's already starting to happen, is scandals far worse than we've ever
0: seen before. You encouraged online content creators to diversify and obviously you've done that very successfully with the books with the podcast with video website etc do you do that out of necessity is that driven by you know as a business i need to find as many ways as possible to make money or is that partly creative uh, where you want to express yourself what's kind of the motivation behind
1: that my motivation is driven entirely by ambition uh it's something i want to do i don't I don't do these things to necessarily safeguard, although it is smart to do that. It is something I want to do. I remember when I first came out to Hollywood, I took a meeting with a big-time agency, and I sat down with the agent, and he said, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to focus on? And I gave him an answer I knew he didn't like, which is I said everything. I want to do everything, which is Book publishing, TV shows, movies, cartoons, comic books, uh, stop-motion animation, video games. I want to do it all because that's what genuinely interests me. When I was a kid, I was a huge fan of John Feluci. He's the creator of Ren and Stimpy. I was a big fan of stop-motion animation. I did a bunch in, uh, by myself in my bedroom with my parents' camcorder. Uh, most rudimentary technology ever, but I was still able to produce. this. These are the things that I like. I like video games. I like comics. I like cartoons, and those are the things I want to create. And so far I have I've created pretty much everything I've mentioned, and I am now working on my very first video game. Tell us more about that.
0: I'm excited to hear, you know, how it's coming together.
1: Yeah, so I can't say too much because it hasn't launched yet, but it is a Maddox property. It is based on me, and it a longtime fans I think will really appreciate this game. It is also I'm trying to do something that hasn't been done before in uh, in video games, and that's risky. Because when you start going down the experimental route, it's just like being experimental in anything else, like TV, movies, uh, podcasts. Anytime you you go out way outside the norm, you risk failing because it's untested. So it's experimental, but within the confines of what we have come to understand and like and appreciate about video games. Uh, I think people will really like this. It's it's um, it's moving the uh, the envelope forward but uh, incrementally, not exponentially. Awesome. Do you have any idea of timeline? It'll probably be launched. I think we're going to do a Kickstarter at the start of February or the end of uh, January sometime. All right. So So, stay
0: tuned. It's coming up. Very cool. Pretty soon. Yeah. Outside of YouTube, what are the other important social or especially online video platforms? What are you doing on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat? How do you think about those platforms? So every new social media platform, you need to look at it as its
1: own thing. Uh, When I produce content natively for Instagram, it always does better than if I port something over from Facebook or Twitter and vice versa. Content I make for Twitter with Twitter audiences in mind for some reason does not translate to Facebook. And I think it's because if you really think about the strengths and drawbacks of a particular platform, you will make content that will take advantage of those strengths and avoid those drawbacks. Uh, So, for example, on Twitter, it's the things that do well on Twitter are short, uh, pithy little jokes and comments and pictures. Uh, the things that do well on Facebook are more soapboxy. Here's my, here's a rant. Here's something I don't agree with up to one to two paragraphs, because as soon as you have to click that view more, you lose a lot of people, myself included. And Instagram, I am experimenting a little bit with Instagram stories, but I think those are kind of uh, disposable. Uh, they're very ephemeral. And What you see today won't be there tomorrow, so I don't put a lot of weight into those. Uh, But I do like Instagram as a platform because it is basically everything you used to like about Facebook minus the politics.
0: What about Twitch? What about live streaming?
1: Oh, Twitch is great. Uh, Twitch, by the way, okay, I'm so glad you brought up Twitch and live streaming. This is the biggest platform. It has the biggest room for improvement. I went to TwitchCon for the very first time. So did I this past year. It was amazing. Really eye-opening. Absolutely, right? I felt like the entire place was bristling with energy. Uh, and I don't mean that in the, you know, spiritual sense or whatever. It it, it, it just felt like the place was pulsating with energy. There was so much, uh, I felt like money being thrown around, so many companies, so much sponsorship, and it's only going to grow from here. It is such a big industry, and we are just barely tapping into it. We're, we're barely scratching the surface. The personalities on Twitch, Now we're talking about these YouTube celebrities who are, you know, these young kids who are getting Gaining fame and notoriety and not knowing what to do with it. This is happening on on Twitch on a microscopic scale almost every day. Someone will blow up and find all their fame and sometimes crash and burn within the same week. Uh, So these things are happening so quickly. And there's so much money to be made. There's so much opportunity to grow. um, And the etiquette on Twitch is its own thing. I remember when I first was interested in doing Twitch streaming, which I've started doing as well, I spent three months just sitting around watching Twitch, and that was for a number of reasons. First of all, out of respect for the platform, because if you try to get in on Twitch, and you're inauthentic, and you're a phony, and you're just some company throwing money at it, they will sniff you out like a rat immediately. They can sniff you out – they can sniff out a phony within seconds on Twitch. The second reason is because I wanted to really understand the platform and really understand the etiquette and the culture of Twitch. You know, you have to understand what Kappa is. You have to understand why people are spamming the same emotes over and over again. You have to understand raids and these type of things. And these, this sounds like I'm speaking a different language to people who don't understand it. But once you do, and you're in, in this world, in this universe... It's not only fascinating and entertaining, but there's a world of opportunities ahead.
0: Yeah. And it's not just gaming anymore. I mean, Twitch has captivated the attention of so many different people and content creators and different verticals. And what inspired me, one, going to TwitchCon is very eye-opening because the audience is older than YouTube and other platforms, and there's more disposable income. Right. And the thing that Twitch, I think, offers that's so different than many of these other players is much more of a direct engagement and interaction with that fan and more direct revenue opportunities right so we're seeing this patronage model emerge and and really gain traction through platforms like twitch right there's a there's a lot of of opportunity for people to engage in twitch for example the donation
1: model the donation model gives the viewer an opportunity to actually shift and shape your content on screen so for example if you wanted to donate five dollars to somebody you liked And I know this sounds alien to people who don't understand the platform or why anyone would donate $5 to someone you're watching. Well, imagine if you're watching the nightly news. Okay, this is – I'm trying to relate this to people who don't understand Twitch. If you're watching the nightly news on your local news channel and you really like something the newscaster said or the way they presented something, wouldn't it be neat to reach out to them and tell them a comment – While their newscast is going and say, hey, here's a here's a dollar tip, just like you would tip a barista for making you a coffee, except this is somebody who is a commentator who you happen to like. You're giving them a little tip and saying, hey, I appreciate your content. And by the way, here's a little comment if you want to read it on the air. Um, It's basically introducing an element that we've lost in culture today, which is talk radio. That's exactly what talk radio used to be. You would have callers calling in and say, hey, here's my comment. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss. And it increases engagement. That's what it's doing. Twitch has merged, I think, the this old element of fan engagement from talk radio with this new, new media platform of
0: streaming and digital technology. So you know, we just finished up 2017. We're in the first week of 2018. It's a great time for reflections of what happened last year. What were the things that surprised you the most in 2017? Uh, 2017 was was kind of a
1: crazy year. It was a mixed bag politically. Things were kind of crazy. The things that surprised me, well, I'll really have to think about this specifically with new media. Oh, here's here's something that surprised me. Vine, Vine is a platform completely went away. That surprised me because this goes back to what you were saying earlier, James, which is uh, this. You know, you have these younger content creators who don't have the experience or maturity to understand what they're sitting on. So, a lot of these Vine creators weren't happy with how much money they were making. They wanted more money, more money from Vine. Vine wasn't be- being very profitable. So, I think they got their top 20 or top 40 creators in a room, sat down and said, hey, we want to, we want you to produce more content. Uh, would you do it and how much would you like? I think they all requested a minimum of a million dollars each. Wow. And Vine said, no, we're not going to spend $40 million on 40 people. So, uh, we'll just shut down the platform. And they gambled everything and lost. And so Vine shut their doors and these people went on. And actually, that brings us back to today. Logan Paul, the guy who did the scandal in the Suicide Forest, was a Viner. I think he and his brother uh, got their foothold in Vine. And many of the YouTube stars today, uh, Daystorm, King Bach, I think is another one. They, they all started as Viners. Yeah, they all started as Viners. So they're they're trying to find a new platform. The other thing that was kind of surprising, too, is I think we saw the rise and fall of Periscope uh and periscope again when it first came out seemed like it had so much potential but then it disappeared i don't know if people still use it if if uh anyone's really using it it's not something that's on my
0: radar very much Now, now me either do you think that the through line there is twitter do we do we expect twitter to go under anytime soon or what you know what happened Jeez, uh twitter so that's the other thing
1: twitter twitter is a big can of worms and jack the the you know the founder of twitter has a huge problem on his hands which is trolls. And and I'm not just talking about trolls in the traditional sense. There is a problem with abusive and toxic content on Twitter. And it is such a problem and there's such an outcry to fix it. And they have been s- so slowly adapting. And finally, they're a little bit responsive this year. And I think what, what the wake up call for Twitter was, is they tried to sell the company and there were no buyers. Nobody wanted it. And one of the big reasons is because most of the accounts on Twitter are zombie accounts nobody's really like the number of people who use Twitter are you know compared to their user base of, of subscribers of, of you know accounts that have been created is very small at one study I think I read said 12% of the accounts created on Twitter are active at any given time uh, which is a very very low very poor numbers and I'll tell you personally the experience I've had with Twitter is, is fairly bad. It's an opportunity for people to do drive-by harassment, and if you want to block somebody, they view it as a badge of honor, and then they go and boast about it, and then it encourages other people to harass you. Uh, And then if you block somebody, it still recommends them to other people who follow you, which is a terrible thing. If you mute somebody, then they can continue to harass your followers and that sort of thing. It's just a toxic situation, and they won't fix it, whereas Facebook... Now, how this contrasts with Facebook, they don't really have this problem because if you block somebody, that's it. They can't comment on your wall. They can't harass your followers. They can't contact your customers. But on Twitter, they can, and it is happening constantly, and you're getting racist content, death threats, rape threats, and it's so difficult to get to get Twitter to respond to some of the stuff. Twitter is you – know, and then the 140-character limit, which drove me crazy as a writer, I like to write. (laughs) I can't communicate sometimes ideas without using the letter U for shorthand, which is stupid. Metadata shouldn't count towards your character limit. A hashtag shouldn't count towards your character limit. Tweeting at four people shouldn't count towards your character. It's just, you know, these are just common sense things that Twitter was just very slow to respond to. And finally, they're, they're starting to, and I think the platform's gotten a little bit better. Reddit
0: experienced similar issues around, you know, trolls and having a toxic community a few years ago, and they brought the founders back in in an effort to clean that up and, and largely turned it around. Do you think Twitter has a chance to do that? Twitter absolutely has a chance to do that, and they have to follow the same
1: strategies that some of these other media companies have done, specifically Facebook. I think Facebook has handled it fairly well. Um, so if you block somebody, that that shuts them off from contacting you or your followers. And that's exactly what Twitter needs to do, so that if you block somebody, uh, they can't continue to harass harass you and harass others. And by the way, I'm a troll. I <laughs> I'm an old school troll. I'm I basically, I practically invented some of the shit that's going on today. But the difference between me and what's going on today is that when I would troll people, they would come to me. I don't go to them. I'm not knocking on your door. I'm not following you around. I'm not harassing people. That's the difference. That's the important distinction. And I learned this lesson very early on, which is not to abuse this power and this platform that I have. And people today are absolutely oblivious to that lesson. Yeah, well, apparently it can get you elected president. <laughs> yeah, that's a, and that's another scary thing. Which uh, there's a big debate right now about whether or not Twitter should block Donald Trump's account. And uh, I hope they don't. I, I think that
0: it'll only make things worse. If mm-hmm. they, they can, right? I mean, if you think about how much attention and press they got, Donald Trump saved CNN and saved Twitter in the same breath.
1: Yeah, well, so don' so Twitter made a statement actually this week about why they won't block his account. And they said that, first of all, it won't stop him from getting his message out, which I think is important. And second, uh, it is an important part of the political dialogue and process in this country or any country to you know to be able to debate your world leaders. When it comes to politics and your political leaders, you have to absolutely have the most transparency and the most opportunity to criticize and comment on what they're doing, their policy, because their policy affects you. It's one thing to block somebody who's you know spouting off shitty racist comments
0: towards you. It's another one to block a world leader. Do you think that Trump's Twitter activity changes politics forever? Are we going to see future politicians using social media as a way to engage their followers in every action that they do now being thrust in the limelight? God, I hope not. I look back at how lame uh,
1: Obama and George Bush's uh, and Hillary Clinton's Twitter activity was you know it was like you' embarrassing mom or dad posting stuff on Twitter trying to be hip with the kids. Um, I, I miss that. I miss a world where where politicians were lame and now and, it's too real. Now it's too real. yeah I don't want Donald Trump to be sending zingers to somebody with a a button on their nuclear you know on a nuclear arsenal. I don't care how powerful you think you are. There are repercussions to nuclear warfare and when you provoke somebody with a tweet when you insult somebody who's who's a mad person which i think kim jong un is he's absolutely out of his out of his mind why provoke somebody like that right because people people always say well Look what happened to sony yeah exactly <laughs> that was just a movie yeah sony and and people people kind of make fun of north korea and say and talk about how impotent and powerless they are but they did cost sony billions of dollars and it had real world repercussions this tiny little country that we're making fun of Ca- almost caused an, a U.S. company to go under. Actually, Japanese. But again, it goes back to the real world repercussions of these new media, these tweets and things like that. And people say we could win a war against North Korea. Great, but what? At what cost? You know, you drop bombs on North Korea. Do you think Russia is just going to sit by and be okay with that? That bombs are flying over their their citizens, their populace. South Korea, you think they're going to be okay with that? Because North Korea, we, you know, they're unpredictable. If they are going to attack us, they might not be interested in just attacking us, but our allies as well. So our tweets, these flippant tweets where we're just insulting world leaders, uh, can have real-world repercussions. And I do hope that there will be some more moderation in our in our language,
0: more granularity more thought well let's certainly hope so yeah so a lot of surprises last year 2017 thinking ahead for this year what are some of your predictions if you had to make three forecasts about the online video space in 2018 what do you see the online video space
1: i think what we're going to see is a rebound in youtube and youtube creators i feel like uh, all the people who huffed and puffed and threatened to leave the platform are going to come back uh, when they realize that it is the best. And I mean, YouTube by far is the best. They are doing things that are innovative. They're trying to... They're, I think they've struck a good balance between keeping creators happy and keeping advertisers happy. Nobody else is doing that. I I think we're going to see for the first time YouTube revenue for content creation exceed that of television revenue. And we're already kind of seeing that because some cable, comp- cable channels, uh, sometimes the ratings for the shows are very, very low, under 20,000 per episode. I can exceed that in an average video of mine. So why am I not getting their money? If if I'm making, if I'm drawing a bigger audience than a cable channel, then I should be getting paid at least what they're getting paid. And I think advertisers are finally going to start to privy up to that and say, okay, well, this is a real platform with a real audience. And YouTube is going to be able to, once they've cleaned up their act, they're going to be able to demand larger fees, larger
0: advertising uh, dollars. I agree the on the ad side because yes, YouTube is moving towards more premium, family-friendly content, and that will bolster CPMS long-term. But a big part of why TV is so lucrative still is a lot of that is subscription revenue. So it's it's also that there's this gap between ads and a paid model, and YouTube is trying to figure that out with YouTube Red, but it hasn't reached the level of success that it needs to for creators to make more serious money on the platform yet.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. The advertising model, so it is a combination, um, but... Disney and ESPN, you know, the drivers of the subscription model on cable... Are bleeding are, subscribers. Yeah, they're bleeding subscribers. Everyone's cutting the cable. Everyone's worried. So you're going to see, I think, services like Pluto. Pluto's an interesting uh, hybrid today.
0: Of, do you do anything on on Pluto?
1: I haven't... I mean, I, don't, I haven't worked on the platform, but I like the platform a lot. I It kind of came on my radar, and I started watching it, and it's great. It's basically... Just the right amount of TV for me. It's a uh, you know, it it has it's very similar to the old old school cable and Dish Network style of. Uh- browsing through content but it is new con new media content mm-hmm.
0: yeah have- yeah so for those who aren't familiar yeah. Pluto TV kind of creates a lean back environment it's digital first programming but it's kind of presented in a linear format similar to TV so you can still channel surf and yeah. discover stuff but it's it's digital first
1: yeah digital first see so you will find YouTube content and, and new media programming on Pluto but uh, curated mm-hmm. so there will be I think fail army has a channel on there where, where it's just um, you know bloopers and people getting hit in the balls and things and I, I know this is idiocracy coming to life, but <laughs> but I do like this more than the traditional TV model
0: yeah and, and it seems that the Pluto model is actually finding more success than, say, the full screen Fod, the Go90. You know, there's been a lot of uh, tough times and perhaps some consolidation ahead for Fod. Probably in my prediction that the biggest players, the Netflixes, the Amazons are going to win that race. But what do you see coming in the SVOD space?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, there were too many companies trying to get into that space too quickly. Um, there's a horror streaming video service. There's, um, you know, outside of hulu and i mean there was CISO, CISO already went under that was supposed to be a comedy streaming service um there's another one there's crackle has one what's the one defy media's screen junkies screen junkies has one there's so many of these different platforms and i don't think many of them are doing well i think the only ones that are doing okay are youtube red
0: and full screens and again those aren't hugely successful but they're doing okay i think well full screen announced that it's shuttering it oh is it really yeah it's officially gone they announced that they were shutting it down. I don't know when the drop dead date is. But. Well, cancel that. So there you go. There's I mean, another one going, going under. And yeah. I think there was another
1: one. There's so many of these streaming services. I think there's too many. Mm-hmm. People at most will want to pay for, you know, three or four streaming services per month. Yeah. And then before you realize it, you're basically paying for cable again, except now you're distributing that to a bunch of different companies. So that's, a, that's an interesting prediction. I think that another prediction, and let me ask you this, James. Do you share a lot on Facebook? No, never. Did you ever share a lot on Facebook? Not really. Okay. So you're not more active on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. For me, I used to share a lot on Facebook. When I first started, when I first created a Facebook account, I was into the novelty of it. It was fun. I shared vacation photos. I shared status updates. I shared my life with my friends and family. And over time,
0: I have found, especially this last few years, I share nothing. You know, now that you mention that, I feel like I went through a similar... Evolution where I stopped sharing on the platform. Maybe I think part of it is the novelty wore off and people's parents started getting on the platform and becomes less cool. I think the other piece of it is that before you used to be able to post on someone's wall, I could go to George's wall, I could write you something that was kind of just between us. I would share my photos with probably my broader friend community, but it wasn't that I was writing something on a timeline that's broadcast to everybody. Right.
1: Yeah. So that's, I think that's part of it that it's, um, the privacy guards aren't as, um, I guess, robust as they used to be. The other part of it is that I think Facebook and most new media platforms have become much more toxic. I hate commenting on anything. I hate having friends get into upset, heated discussions over nothing, especially politics. And that's all I see on Facebook anymore.
0: It seems that only the extremist points are the ones that are engaged with on Facebook, right? right? It kind of promotes pushing people to to one extreme or the other
1: yeah and i think that's the problem with our language today even the language we use which a lot of people on the right are i think justifiedly upset that they are all characterized as nazis as soon as you disagree with them they're nazis and then people on the left as soon as you're disagreed with you know people on the right sometimes characterize them as communists or uh snowflakes or whatever it is there is no granularity in language anymore and this is coming from me, by the way, uh, the guy who created a website called The Best Page in the Universe. I, I mean, I first and foremost understand the problem of this, uh, this hyperbolic language, but when it has taken a foothold in society at large, I think we have a real problem. You, you know, it's never sometimes. People are saying always. So instead of saying, sometimes this is a problem, it is always a problem. And not only is it a problem, it's the worst problem. And you're Hitler.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Quickly descends. But in your defense, I don't think we've found a better page on the internet yet. No, it it doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So until we uh, find other intelligent life forms in the universe, maybe then you'll have to uh, give up the domain. I don't think we're going to find (laughs) them. I think we've turned them
1: off. They're just—they're just they're not interested. A, they were on the way to our planet, and they caught a, a feed of what's going on the last couple of years. Like, no, no, we're, they just is, turned around. Yeah, you turn on that no, one. Nothing here. Yeah, nothing here. Good.
0: No intelligent life. <laughs> now, here's a question I ask everyone on the show, and you're going to have a different take on it as a creator. But if you were starting a business in the online video space today, knowing everything that you know, what would you do? So, if I was going to create a channel or it, a platform, any sort of business, right? It could be again, being uh, an individual content creator, it could be uh, starting a, a company. What are the things that you see as white space in the online video ecosystem? Well, two things. First is I would not
1: rely on advertisers. I do not rely on advertisers or the subscription, the advertiser subscription model. I feel like it's unreliable and you will always be beholden to the whims of your advertiser. And you will be beholden to their tastes and interests. And they will set an upper limit on what you can and can't say. So what I would do, and this is what I've done, is monetize by selling a product. So if people are coming to you, like, for example, people come to me, they like me as a personality. They like my content as as a content creator. So what I do is I offer them merchandise that is related to me and it's so simple to do these days there's no excuse not to uh, getting into the merchandise space is as simple as uploading artwork to a website that's high quality and then you can have it printed on some uh, t-shirts and mugs and things like that pretty easily if you can sell a product that no one else is selling that's a great that's a great opportunity have you worked with advertisers in the past yes and i do for my podcast sure. as well uh, and how is that experience well it's been a mixed bag i i it's very difficult because when you have when you have principles and I know it sounds like I'm blowing sunshine at my own ass here but I have turned down money for companies I don't think would be a good fit for my listeners not even companies I don't like I just companies that don't wouldn't be a good fit like for example I had an eyeglass company approach me and I said well I don't wear glasses I can't vouch for your product thanks but no thanks uh, I turned away money again and a pet company pet food company came to me wanting to advertise uh, on my on my podcast, And I said, I don't have pets. I can't speak to the quality of your product. So, you know, some people won't do that. Some people won't turn away money. They'll take anything they can get. But then also, it does tinge your product a little. It makes you a little bit less cool if you're selling someone else's product, especially if it's outside of what you do or sell normally. And that's not a knock on these products because I wouldn't ever sell a product that I didn't support. But it is also sometimes not really a product that is in line with your brand or image necessarily. I mean, I'm a pirate. So if, you know, for example, someone is going to come to me and say, hey, can you sell Tupperware? Yeah, maybe I like the Tupperware, maybe I don't. But it's not a hip brand that I would want to associate with my whole persona. Uh, I HelloFresh it was a, is one of my sponsors. And I am 100% on board because I am a big advocate of people learning how to cook. In fact, I've made multiple videos in the past to that effect. So when they came to advertise with me, even though you wouldn't think it's a brand that would be associated with me it is very much in line with my philosophy
0: and thinking so my fans did respond to that yeah very cool i I didn't want to take you too far afield but uh coming back if you were starting the business you said you wouldn't do something that was dependent on advertising revenue and and not even subscription revenue you said
1: yes yeah correct um well subscription revenue if you can get it but as we've seen all these uh, companies falter you know full screen and CISO, and uh who knows maybe youtube red there was, a, there was a couple others, I think, that
0: faltered. Yeah. Uh, so it's just too unreliable on your, your perspective.
1: Well, the, I don't. I just don't think there is enough. Um, the pie is not big enough yet. Uh, right now, we still, you know, as much as we bemoan cable and how they're, you know, falling off and they're bleeding subscribers, they are still the big player in the game. If the cable subscribers were reduced by 50% of what they are today, there might be, you know, that those people might be part of that bigger pie. But we're not quite there yet. And where can people find out more about you and all the great content that you create? Well, if you want to check out my podcast, it's madcastmedia.com. I do a debate-themed podcast called The Best Debate in the Universe, where people uh, listen to the debate and they decide which side is more persuasive. They can vote on the website on who they think won that debate. Uh, My website is uh, The Best Page in the Universe. You can Google it. It's the first link that comes up. And uh, my YouTube channel is The Best Show in the Universe, and I uh, recommend you check that out if you want to be put in a bad mood and watch a bunch of satire and an angry man yelling at you
0: <laughs> very good well george thanks so much this has been a lot of fun and it's it's so fascinating to hear really kind of the experience of a true creator and the fact that this wasn't really possible 20 years ago but now you can live your dream you can do what you love you can create content share it with an audience and uh and make money doing that it's amazing Absolutely. I hope so.
1: I hope I can keep it going. Oh, and uh, especially with net neutrality, that's the big thing we uh, we didn't really talk about. But Sure. Uh, you well, know. Let's talk about it now. What are your views on that? Well, I don't think that with net neutrality repealed – if we don't have net neutrality safeguards, I don't think that someone like me could have ever come to prominence. I was a 16-year-old kid in my parents' basement producing content, and I was competing with ABC, CBS, NBC, all these big companies also putting their content online, and people were able to access it. In parallel, but today, if small-time creators like me have to pay to get that access, which is what we're seeing on Facebook, if you create a Facebook page and you have a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand followers on your Facebook page, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to broadcast your message to a hundred or two hundred thousand followers because you have to pay to reach them. So Facebook is already a preview of what the internet might look like with net neutrality repealed, and
0: I hope it doesn't get that far, but uh, I'm afraid it will. It feels to me like this is the American version of Brexit. Like this is the stupid thing we're going to be kicking ourselves for a year, two, three, five years from now. It's going to be very painful to
1: repeal and and you know put in place safeguards again. I think, it, I, but I think it's a good painful because we need to. Sometimes things
0: have to get worse before they get better. Mm -hmm. And and no one really knows what is that new model, right? How do we find out uh, how to regulate the Internet appropriately? What's the government's appropriate role? How do we help the
1: little guy? Some would say no role. They should have no role. But we've seen that, you know, sometimes that leads to abuses. Uh, I'm not a fan of no regulation, and I'm not a fan of big regulation either. I feel like (laughs) regulation when necessary and leave everything alone until you need to. But, uh, yeah, we'll see.
0: I hope it doesn't get worse. But uh, we've already seen a preview of it with Facebook. I hope we don't go down that path. Yeah, certainly not. Well, again, George, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.